Frank Muir goes into the army and investigates the humour of the subject with the help of Alfred Marx. They were doing medical examinations for an army entry and the bloke came in with one leg nine inches shorter than the other, you see. Nemo said, yes, that's fine, you're in. He said, wait a minute, he said, I've got one leg nine inches shorter than the other. Nemo said, don't worry, man, where you're going, the ground won't be level. <laughs> Another bloke went to the M.O. and when they looked into his ear, they found they could see right through and out the other side. They made him a lieutenant. <laughs> in my regiment, we used to shoot first and ask questions afterwards. Of course, we never got many answers. <laughs> now, come on, come on, you, come along. Now, this won't do. You're meant to be firing this rifle at the target. None of your shots are hitting it. Have you any idea where they're going? No, sir. All I know is they're leaving this end, all right. <laughs> An officer's walking across the parade ground when he saw a cigarette stub on the floor with a private standing nearby. You, soldier, is that yours? Oh, it's all right, sir. He said, you have it. You saw it first. <laughs> What's wrong with you, Private Jones? I've got a pain in my abdomen, Sergeant Major. Now, listen, lad. Officers have abdomens. NCOs have stomachs. What you've got is a pain in your belly. <laughs> An Irish regiment in desperate straits during a battle. Private ran up to the commanding officer. Sir, sir, we're out of ammunition. Well, don't let the enemy know, he said. Whatever you do, keep firing. <laughs> Alt, who goes here? Orderly, officer. Alt, who goes here? I've just told you, orderly officer. Oh, who goes here? What's the matter with you, man? Are you deaf or are you being deliberately insolent? Sorry, sir. The sergeant said, if anyone I didn't recognise approached me, officer shout, oh, who goes here three times and then fire. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that the Royal Corps signals are conducting experiments in crossing a carrier pigeon with a woodpecker? They want a bird that will knock on the door before delivering its message. <laughs> You, Marx, are you happy in the army? As happy as can be expected, sir, I suppose. Uh, what were you before you were called up? A lot happier, sir. <laughs> there was this young lieutenant, you see, and he was trying to make a phone call from a phone box. He hadn't got the right chain, so he stopped the private who was walking by. He said, have you got uh, some 2P pieces for a tempany piece? Hang on a sec, I'll have a softy. I say, don't you know the correct way to address an officer, Bart the lieutenant? I'll ask you again, have you some 2 penny pieces for a tempany piece? No, sir, said the private. <laughs> the army suffers from the fact that it only shows its best in time of war and war is currently a bit unfashionable as a result the army is the frequent butt of humour without war military activities like many others can look pretty silly John Fowles men love war because it allows them to look serious because it is the one thing that stops women laughing at them Unfortunately, there's a strong love of war inherent in human nature. Partly, it's the excitement. Deaning. Hatred and the feeling of solidarity pay a high psychological dividend. The statistics of suicide show that for non-competence at least, life is more interesting in war than in peace. Also, things get done in wartime. Here's the view of a character in Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage. What I could do with round here is a good war. I mean, what else can you expect with peace running wild all over the place? <laughs> you know what the trouble with peace is? No organisation. And war is supposed to bring political benefits. A definition from Ambrose Bierce. Battle. A method of untying with the teeth the political nut that would not yield to the tongue. War, war is a disaster for almost everyone, as Winston Churchill observed. War. 
War is little more than a catalog of mistakes and misfortunes. <laughs> And yet it remains popular. Every war seems to be followed by waves of nostalgia. This year we've been celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Civil War and the 50th anniversary of the beginning of World War I and the 20th anniversary of the end of World War II. So all in all, it's been a good year for the war buffs. <laughs> and a number of LPs and television specials have come out capitalizing on all this nostalgia. With... with particular emphasis on the songs of the various wars. I feel that if any songs are going to come out of World War III, we better start writing them now. <laughs> I have one here. You might call it a bit of pre-nostalgia. This is the song that some of the boys sang as they went bravely off to World War III. So don't wait up for me But while you swelter down there in your shelter You can see me on your TV While we're attacking frontally Watch Brinkley and Huntley Describing contrapuntally The cities we have lost No need for you to miss a minute Of the agonizing Holocaust Yeah! was a U.S. pilot, and no shrinking violet, was he? He was mighty proud when World War III was declared. He wasn't scared, no siree. And this is what he said on his way to Armageddon. So long, Mom, I'm off to drop the bomb, so don't wait up for me. But though I may roam, I'll come back to my home. Although it may be a pile of debris. Remember, Mommy, I'm off to get a commie. So send me a salami and try to smile somehow. I'll look for you when the war is over. An hour and a half from now. With Tom Lehrer. Soldiers are the mainstay of wars. Indeed, without them, wars couldn't happen. But the planning is done by generals. And the credit, if there is any flying about, tends to go to generals too. This is not a new state of affairs. Here's a quotation from Andromach by Euripides. When the public sets a war memorial up, do those who really sweat it get the credit? No, no, no. Some general wangles the prestige. In war, the soldier is the last person to be considered. And certainly wars don't start with soldiers. Will Rogers. Diplomats are just as essential to starting a war as soldiers are for finishing it. You take diplomacy out of war and the thing would fall flat in a week. <laughs> soldiers don't always have total faith in their leaders. Or be menin. It's the man who's afraid of the enemy's general staff that's a coward. The man who's afraid of his own is merely an old soldier. <laughs> War has changed in the last century, and now it doesn't only involve soldiers. J.K. Galbraith. One of the tolerable features of old-fashioned wars was that the military planner could proceed with his task in the reasonably secure knowledge that in the event of hostilities, someone else would be killed. <laughs> because civilians involved in wars on a much larger scale now, 
Maybe there's a greater tendency to question the activities of generals. I mean, what does go on at command headquarters? Sir, the plans have been completed for the attack tomorrow morning exactly as you ordered. That's good, Major. Now, what time do we jump over? The attack is scheduled for 6.45, 7 o'clock in that neighborhood. <laughs> good, good. I'm only to schedule the paratroopers in to meet the ground troops at the objective. The juncture of infantry and paratroops will be made Wednesday, 0900, Thursday, the latest. <laughs> Major, you've done it again. There's only one thing, General. We've got to close off that gap on the left flank. Well, there's only one man to run that operation. General Finkelstein. Right, sir. Get me General Finkelstein. Eastern Sector Command Post 6 immediately. Right, sir. Chief of Staff. This is a top priority call. Get me General Finkelstein, Eastern Second Command, post six immediately. Please deposit another 20 cents. Operator, hurry. This is top priority. Don't get excited. I'll get you General Finkelstein. But first, I have to know one thing. What is it? Did you want General Finkelstein the furrier or General Finkelstein the jeweler? <laughs> That was Phil Leeds, Barry Newman and Betty Walker from the LP, The Yiddish Are Coming. <laughs> One quality which is traditionally ascribed to army personnel, whether generals or privates, is lack of imagination, or in jokes, stupidity. Here's a telling headline from a wartime daily herald. War office admits officers need intelligence. <laughs> Part of the reason why the army has an image of thickness is that army discipline demands instant obedience to orders, often at the expense of thought. H.G. Wells. The army ages men sooner than the law and philosophy. It exposes them more freely to germs, which undermine and destroy, and it shelters them more completely from thought, which stimulates and preserves. Gottfried Reinhardt. You know, there are three kinds of intelligence. The intelligence of man, the intelligence of the animal, and the intelligence of the military, in that order. <laughs> Yosef Hubert. The sound of the drum drives out thought. For that very reason, it is the most military of instruments. But one shouldn't be too dismissive of the military intellect. The army has always been very selective in its choice of men. From the News Chronicle. A report of the Special Services Aftercare Subcommittee of Birmingham Education Committee says, a man under statutory supervision as a mental defective has joined the forces and been made a corporal. <laughs> Yes, considering all the other recruits he's thrown together with, it makes a fellow proud to be a soldier. The heart of every man in our platoon must swell with pride For the nation's youth, the cream of which is marching at his side For the fascinating rules and regulations that we share And the quaint and curious costumes that we're called upon to wear to do his part defending you and me he wants to fight and bleed and kill and die for liberty with the hell of war he's come to grips policing up the filter tips it makes a fella proud to be a soldier when 
Pete was only in the seventh grade, he stabbed a cop. He's real R.A. material, and he was glad to swap his switchblade and his old zip gun for a bayonet and a new M1. It makes a fellow proud to be a soldier. After Johnny got through basic training, he was a soldier through and through when he was done. Its effects were so well-rooted that the next day he saluted a good humor man, an usher, and a nun. Now, Fred's an intellectual, brings a book to every meal. He likes the deep philosophers, like Norman Vincent Peale. He thinks the army's just the thing because he finds it broadening. It makes a fellow proud to be a soldier. Flunked out of second grade and never finished school. He doesn't know a shelter half from an entrenching tool, but he's going to be a big success. He heads his class at OCS. It makes a fellow proud to be a soldier. Our old mess sergeant's taste buds had been shot off in the war, but his savory collations add to our esprit de corps. To think of all the marvelous ways they're using plastics nowadays, it makes a fellow proud to be a soldier. Our lieutenant is the up-and-coming type. Played with soldiers as a boy, you just can bet. It is written in the stars. He will get his captain's bars, but he hasn't got enough box tops yet. Our captain has a handicap to cope with, sad to tell. He's from Georgia, and he doesn't speak the language very well. He used to be, so rumor has, the dean of men at Alcatraz. It makes a fellow proud to be what as a kid I vowed to be. What luck to be allowed to be a soldier. That is... It's Tom Lear again. Yes, why not? The army expects to get a fairly mixed bunch of young men joining its ranks. In fact, it prides itself on knocking the corners off and turning them into soldiers. Perhaps this would be a good moment for another definition from Ambrose Bierce. Recruit. A person distinguishable from a civilian by his uniform and from a soldier by his gait. <laughs> Bierce also wrote a little poem about a recruit. Fresh from the farm or factory or street, his marching in pursuit or in retreat was an impressive martial spectacle, except for two impediments, his feet. <laughs> but what's it actually like in the army? Though it's a closed society, we can get an inkling from newspaper reports, like this one, preserved from the Daily Graphic. Ex-soldier fined one pound at Chatham yesterday for stealing food from Chatham Barracks, said he'd spent such a long time in the army that it had become a habit. <laughs> Mind you, mind you, such behaviour is frowned on in the army. Discipline is very rigid and punishments are severe. Here's an extract from a war office statement made in the House of Commons. Military prisons, object one. The object of penal establishments will be the rehabilitation of the soldier under sentence as a soldier and to fit him in every way for a return to his unit. In cases where this rehabilitation as a soldier is impossible, due to the incapability of the man himself, the object will be to prepare him for a return to civil life. This latter course will not be adopted except in the most stubborn cases. <laughs> <laughs> but these are details. Soldiers really come into their own in time of war. Watch out. Landmines ahead. Watch out. Landmines ahead. Watch out. Landmines ahead. Watch out. Landmines ahead. Look out. Shell holes ahead. Look out. Shell holes ahead. Look out. Shell holes ahead. 
Look out. Shell holes ahead. Hey, how far are we from the front lines? Hey, how far are we from the front lines? Hey, how far are we from the front lines? Ten miles. <laughs> Ten miles. Ten miles? Then why are we whispering? Then why are we whispering? Then why are we whispering? I don't know about you boys, but I've got laryngitis. <laughs> another bit from the Yiddish are coming. It's a marvellous title, isn't it? Incidentally, while we're talking about what happens in war, let's hear what Harold W. Ross had to say about Ernest Hemingway's book, A Farewell to Arms. I understand the hero keeps getting in bed with women, and the war wasn't fought that way. <laughs> no, the way the war was fought, in fact, the way all wars have ever been fought, was by the book. The army is a minefield of regulations, right from the moment you join up. Here's an extract from the application form. Proof of birth should be securely pinned between pages two and three of this form. <laughs> <laughs> and the regulations continue at all levels, especially on matters of discipline and punishment. An extract from a military guide. The more serious of these offences are punishable by death. And some of them carry heavier penalties when committed on active service. <laughs> the army has to be tough. Discipline is the basis of efficiency. That's why soldiers do all that drill. Here's a letter to the News Chronicle. I was watching a squad of soldiers drilling on the barracks square and was surprised to see one of them marching with two rifles at the short trail. Upon asking the reason for this, I was informed by a sergeant that the owner of the second rifle was ill but his rifle had to go on parade just the same as usual. <laughs> Care of weapons is very important in the army. After all, weapons are the basis of military strength, which reminds me of a famous schoolboy howler. If his rifle fails, the British soldier always has the good old bayonet to fall back on. <laughs> the deployment of weapons is planned at the highest level. Now, the government's defence, what for want of a better word I'll call policy, <laughs> is based on the concept of the deterrent. Now, take a situation in which what for purposes of argument we call an unnamed power should take a nuclear missile and drop it on the United Kingdom. That's you and me. We, in the United Kingdom, would then take another nuclear missile and drop it on Russia, on the... On <laughs> this, you see, would deter them from bringing... <coughs> no, uh, no, rather it would effectually discourage them. <laughs> Um. Well, it would die well serve them right. <laughs> Alan Bennett from Beyond the Fringe. That may prompt one to echo this thought from Joseph Heller. Frankly, I'd like to see the government get out of war altogether and leave the whole field of private industry. <laughs> but back to weapons. Will Rogers. You can't say civilization don't advance, however, for in every war they kill you in a new way. In, in former centuries, the hardware of killing was fairly basic. Let's hear another definition from Ambrose Bierce's Devil's Dictionary. 
Gunpowder, an agency employed by civilized nations for the settlement of disputes which might become troublesome if left unadjusted. Nowadays, weapons are more sophisticated. From the Daily Mail. There is a weapon of the future, too. The air-launched guided missile fitted with a ramjet engine, cheap to build, fast and devilish in action. Dr. Bush believes it may yet bring a feeling of security to the world. <laughs> and every day, a new and more devilish weapon is invented. Here's one devised by Beachcomber's famous character, Dr. Strabismus, whom God preserve, of Utrecht. The doctorists are also to have invented an extraordinary weapon which will make war less brutal. It's described as a very powerful liquid which rots braces <laughs> at a distance of a mile. <laughs> this liquid, which is sprayed out of a sprayer, has no ill effect. It smells like a spring morning. But it's deadly to the material from which braces are made. <laughs> Within an hour of an attack by this liquid, which is heavier than air, the braces begin to rot and finally disintegrate. The air becomes full of the rustle and plop of falling bridges. <laughs> the hapless infantrymen find that their movements are impeded by the descended garments. Also, the ivy flapping shirts give them a sense of inferiority. <laughs> <laughs> Once more into the bridges, dear friends. <laughs> Whenever I hear that, I have a sneaky feeling that it will probably work very well. <laughs> I'm afraid nowadays weapons have gone nuclear in a big way. And other simpler methods of killing are out of fashion. For a comment on this, let's hear for an unashamed third time from Tom Lehrer. One of the big news items of the past year concerned the fact that China, which we call Red China, exploded a nuclear bomb, which we called a device. <laughs> Then Indonesia announced that it was going to have one soon, and proliferation became the word of the day. Here's a song about that. First we got the bomb, and that was good, because we love peace and motherhood. Then Russia got the bomb, but that's okay, because the balance of powers maintained that way. Who's next? Bomb, but don't you grieve, because they're on our side, I believe. China got the bomb, but have no fears. They can't wipe us out for at least five years. Who's next? Uh, then Indonesia claimed that they were going to get one any day. South Africa wants two. That's right. One for the black and one for the white. Who's next? Shepherd says the psalm, but just in case, we better get a bomb. <laughs> a Luxembourg is next to go, and who knows, maybe Monaco. We'll try to stay serene and calm when Alabama gets the bomb. Who's next? Who's next? Who's next? Who's next? But we're in danger of getting too cynical about military affairs. Let us remember the glory and dignity of the army. A letter to the News Chronicle. As a small child out with my father, I was watching a guardsman on duty. As he passed us, I said in childish innocence, You've got a muff on your head? <laughs> my father reacted angrily. 
I got a good whack and he said, that is the Queen's uniform, don't you ever dare say such a thing again. I never did. (laughs) (laughs) Until now. Perhaps the time when one sees the army at its most impressive is at a big parade, when the splendour and pageantry must stir even the most cynical of spirits. But that sort of event takes a lot of forethought and planning. From the Daily Express. The Coldstream Guards are taking strict precautions to stop men fainting at the Trooping the Colour ceremony on Horse Guards Parade next month. On the night before big parades, men below the rank of sergeant are to be confined to barracks, and married men condemned to bachelor barrack beds. (laughs) Didn't know it stopped you fainting. (laughs) Parades and march paths are all very well in their way, but as I said at the beginning of the programme, the army really only comes into its own in times of war. Fortunately, there are some people around who think the war is still on. Over to two German soldiers in the Black Forest. You will say anything, Scholz? <laughs> I, I don't see anything either. Scholz, just because we haven't seen anybody doesn't mean the Americans aren't still behind that farmhouse. All right, 17 years. You ever think it might be a trick? <laughs> just waiting for us to relax our guard and then... I'm not going to fall for that stunt. Did I ever think we might have lost the war? We'd never lose two out of two, Schultz. <laughs> Sometimes you're disgraced to your uniform. All right, then you're disgraced to your underwear. He 
end can't be far off now, George. Bob Newhart. <laughs> Just a couple of final thoughts on the army. First, a report from Courier, the post office staff magazine. The BBC gave 17-year-old Martin May £30 for starring in a TV documentary about how good life was in the army. But then Martin used the money to buy himself out and join the post office. <laughs> and finally, from Oscar Wilde. As long as war is regarded as wicked, it will always have its fascination. When it's looked upon as vulgar, it will cease to be popular. <laughs> Next week, Alfred and I will be going into the Navy. Until then, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, Alfred. Stand to attention when you talk to a comment. Sir. Right. <laughs> Frank Muir Goes Into the Army was produced by Simon Brett.